This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Madison Connaughton, editor of the Saturday paper, joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Emeritus Professor John Burns from the University of Hong Kong joined me via Skype to talk about the protests in Hong Kong as well as the view from mainland China. He'll be appearing at the University of Melbourne later this week. Then, finally, British philosopher A.C. Grayling, who is Master of the New College of the Humanities in London and a supernumerary fellow of St Anne's College at Oxford, joined me on the phone to talk about his new book, The History of Philosophy. We discussed ancient philosophy as well as making a detour through Brexit. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me in the studio the editor of the Saturday paper, Madison Connaughton, and uh, she's here to talk federal politics and uh, we heard from her last week and I certainly enjoyed the wide-ranging chat that we had and I thank you, Madison, hi, for coming back in. Thank you for having me. I'm so sorry. I have a terrible cold this week, so I have that horrible (laughs) cold voice on the radio. I feel like I don't want to bring everyone's morning down. Oh, that's okay. Actually, usually, well, when I have a cold, my voice goes deeper. Oh, okay. So it you could have only one of those be a cool benefit. Voices. I have one of those cold voices that just sounds horrible. So. No. Well, you're sounding okay from my like vantage point, and I have like headphones on with loud sounds, so not to worry. Okay, great. Thank you for braving your cold to come in. Uh, so, federal politics, um, as you said, and as we've discussed, that. The, the government isn't really sitting that much this year, just as it wasn't really last year. It's reduced the number of sitting days by a substantial amount. Um, why don't we start there in the sense of we saw the coalition government come to power only recently. They've, I guess, reduced the number of days they're in Canberra officially sitting and considering legislation. Uh, they have a legislative agenda. However, it does seem quite, you know, all over the place. It doesn't seem like there's a kind of cohesive vision or plan that has an overarching narrative or concept. What is your take first up on the coalition as a government, you know, coming to power, having that initial, um, you know, tax cut package that was very important to them in terms of stimulating the economy? Are we now in a kind of holding pattern where things kind of arise that are relevant or important to be dealt with and they're they're responding? Or do you think they have some um, proactive interests, policy plans? Mm. I think it's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that the coalition does have a strong legislative agenda. I think that um, Scott Morrison came into the election with his tax cut package. He was very clear about that. But beyond that, we got very little detail about what a Morrison government might look like. And a lot of the legislation that we've seen go through in the sitting days so far this year since the election have been held over from last year. They were sort of things we didn't get to before the election. Um, So I do think that there is a bit of a vacuum of policy. I'm definitely not the first person to say that. A lot of people have recognised that, you know, the coalition probably didn't think that it was going to win the election So there hasn't been a lot of um, policy thought beyond that tax package and beyond, I guess, the push for a surplus, which does seem to be where policy is angling at the moment. As long as it doesn't cost more money that will be taken from the surplus, it's kind of going through. But expensive policy changes like New Start, which we uh, discussed last week, that 
probably, I mean, it definitely is not going to happen unless um, if it jeopardizes the surplus. Mm. It's really interesting. I get like these periodic reminders on Twitter about how much we spend on franking credits. And so a lot of people, when you talk about all of these other um, priorities, I guess, that the, the government has made as, well, we do think these franking credits are important. It's all about, isn't it, when with budgeting, what your priority is as a government? Yes. I feel like that's also what my mum tells me about my personal budgeting and I don't <laughs> take it very much uh, to heart. But I do think that in terms of what comes from here, it seems like industrial relations may be a focus for the Morrison government. Um, Christian Porter is a very powerful figure within the Morrison government. He's the Attorney General, but he's also been handed the industrial relations portfolio, which is interesting. I can't really remember another attorney general that had mm. IR um, but maybe if one of our listeners knows yes, they, can, tweet us. they can let me know um, but that is kind of a strange combination and I do think that it signals that they want to do work in that space um, obviously the union bill that um, went in front of parliament last time was part of that um, which I think will will be back on the agenda when they sit in mid-September and mm. uh, will basically come down to whether Jackie Lambie will back the bill or not. It is very interesting that you mention industrial relations because we've seen a couple of issues arise uh, over the last week. The Metro Trains uh, people, people, employees um, and beyond in the transport sector had planned to have strikes. Uh, in fact, one of them was meant to be yesterday and there was going to be another and they were taken to court to um, consider whether the strike action would be lawful and they essentially were told, no, you can't do this and there's been further bargaining and discussion around what type of industrial action uh, people who work at Metro Trains can actually take. Um, it seems like there is actually such a limited number of options for any kind of union to have and they have to go through such a lengthy process of you know voting from their members as to whether they protest there's so many boxes to tick that the, there's potentially a power imbalance already in our industrial relations system which was put in place by uh, the Howard government, then changed by the Rudd-Gillard government and then, um, you know, continued and tweaked by the uh, coalition government. What are your thoughts around the kind of discussions that we're having around wages growth and employees' ability to bargain and to have enough power to uh, boost their own incomes, which have been mostly stagnant for the last few years? Mm. Well, I think the number of days lost to industrial action has gone down significantly over the last few decades. I don't think that we're seeing a lot of large-scale strikes, and that may be, as you say, because the legal system is is stopping that going forward and, and sort of hamstringing one of the key tactics that unions have to force force change. I do think that the coalition is so scared of being accused of work choices 2.0 that whatever action they take on industrial relations will be quite slow and um and trying to i guess fly under the radar mm. because that was such a controversial policy it was so thoroughly torn apart i just don't think they ever want to go there again so I think it will be a complicated road for them to walk. I think they've obviously gone after unions first because 
I mean, it's kind of a... It's playing on stereotypes of what unions are, which all of the data shows us that that's not really the case of what they are anymore. I mean, the mm. person that's most likely to be part of a union now is sort of a woman in her mid-50s that's a, a nurse or a teacher or, or working in a caring industry. So the the picture of the union thug that is trying to be um, projected, it just doesn't reflect the reality anymore. Yeah, that's really true. And it was interesting that the Reserve Bank governor who we referenced last week uh, made a statement around wages growth in uh, the public sector and he said, quote, caps on wages growth in public sectors across the country are another factor contributing to the subdued wage outcomes. At the aggregate level, my view is that a further pickup in wages growth is both affordable and desirable. It's still that's like a pretty large statement from the Reserve Bank governor who's essentially telling governments to pay their public service more. Yeah, I mean, as we said last week, Philip Lowe, very conservative fellow, he's he's not someone to speak out of turn. It's it's a very big move for a Reserve Bank governor to suggest policy changes to a government. He obviously thinks that something is going very, very wrong at the moment. Yeah. Um, now let's move on to some other issues that are interesting. Um, we'll maybe save the international elements till the end. So let's move to domestic politics with the fact that as we press Uh, last week there's going to be an inquiry into press freedom we saw peter dutton release a statement on friday afternoon um, suggesting that uh, the afp and other agencies should be more cautious than they currently have been around investigating journalists when issues of national security arise he didn't really um, go into bat for whistleblowers but he was making a much stronger statement around journalists than he has in the past What are your thoughts around the reason why Peter Dutton broke his silence around this and kind of uh, formed a harder view, a stronger view on this? Mm. Well, I definitely welcome the statement. I welcome the support as a journalist. Uh, I I don't know how eagerly Peter Dutton gave that statement, um, but the fact that he gave it, I'm glad that it happened. I suspect that it is probably trying to head off at the pass the Senate inquiry hearings that are happening this week uh, in Sydney, I believe, uh, which basically every media executive from across the country is going to come and and, um, speak to this hearing, um, which is the PJCIS hearing. hearing which is actually Andrew Hasty is the chair of that so I believe we might discuss Andrew Hasty yes. in a little bit but so the PJCIS uh, inquiry is the first press freedom inquiry that's going to happen this year there's a second one by the communications um uh, committee, which is going to happen later in the year. There's sort of these two dueling press freedom inquiries. Um, but I think that what Peter Dutton is trying to do is take some of the heat out of this issue and signal to media executives and to journalists that this isn't going to happen again. Mm-hmm. There, there aren't going to be raids like this again. I don't know if that is the reality. Like, we can never say what is going to happen again. But I do think that the amount of backlash that the coalition faced over the raids of the ABC and Anarchist Methurst's house were unexpected. I don't think that they expected how virulently people would oppose this kind of um, impeach, like uh, encroachment on press mm. freedoms in Australia. Yeah, it certainly helped as well for it to be like live tweeted and all the vision. Yeah. It just felt like you could experience and understand the anxiety that perhaps the ABC and its employees might be feeling when the AFP turns up. Sure. to go through all their files. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's why 
it's so vital to have someone like John Lyons mm. working for you. Um, he was the ABC um, veteran journalist and producer who tweet, live tweeted the whole thing. And he is the kind of person who has been in these situations before and knows that he can push back. And I think that that is the hard thing for young journalists or independent journalists, or if the police come to your house as a journalist how do you know what your rights are in that moment and I think that John Lyons having all the experience that he does and also having a team of ABC lawyers there with him knew that he could live tweet that that sort of interaction and mm. that he wasn't going to be breaking any laws or getting in trouble himself and that he sort of had a right to communicate to the public what was happening. Yeah he's still being um, quite vocal and informative around what's been going on and there was I think a freedom of information uh, request from Senator Rex Patrick. Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it, I can't remember the exact details, but it was around, um, they asked for information around this raid and found out that what actually was cut out of the FOI and denied um, was more revealing than what was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in, according to them, the suggestion was that there were other agencies involved uh, in this investigation that aren't allowed to be um, released, and that was the reason why they weren't allowed to give this information. And Rex Patrick, having his background in national security, uh, suggested that it would be um, agencies like the Australian Signals Directorate or ASIO, because under FOI, they are the kinds of um, agencies that can't be, um, I guess revealed Mm. well i mean i i can't speak to what was redacted in that Mm. we're all guessing aren't we (laughs) but i mean this the story that um the abc was raided over was the afghan files which related to the conduct of australian soldiers in afghanistan and so you would suspect that if there was some sort of investigation going on it would have um agencies that are uh, domestic and and foreign agencies Mm. as well so that would include um maybe some of those redacted agencies within the documents. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch what happens because I believe uh, Annika Smethurst and her organisation behind her as well as the ABC are contesting these two um, raids and whether the AFP should have access to the files that they've taken and, and sealed and stored away. Yeah, yeah, which I think is important. And I, I do think if they win, it will set an important precedent for media that, that you can push back on these um, on these kind of seizures of files. And I, I think that that would be a good moderation of these sort of sweeping laws that we've seen um, give power to Home Affairs and the AFP to um, raid journalists over whistleblower leaks. Mm. Now, let's... Um, talk a little bit about some other issues which are probably a bit more big picture and interesting in my view. Um, One of them is the Pacific Islands Forum which is always very interesting because uh, the members of the Pacific Islands Forum don't really hold back in terms of what they think about um, for example Australia's actions or lack of action on climate change and we've seen pretty much at every forum discussions around um, Australia being a kind of a poor um, neighbour on that level. And, of course, Australia does provide some level of aid to a range of countries directly around us, um, but that certainly doesn't let us off the hook for all the other political issues that we face and should be, um, you know, supporting our neighbours on. So in terms of Scott Morrison, who... Um, 
has got, I guess, a plan. He's going to announce a, a package for the Pacific Islands Forum, which is being held in Tuvalu. What um, do you think Scott Morrison's agenda is at the Pacific Islands Forum and also um, with this package that he's slated? Mm, so this is $500 million for climate change mitigation in the Pacific. It's existing aid, so it's not new money, but it's just being redirected to this particular cause. And there was $300 million that Australia pledged to this to a similar cause over the past three years, I think, which will end at the end of this year. So it's kind of renewing this project that's been ongoing. Uh, it's a substantial amount of money. I think it's a splashy um, announcement for him to be able to make at the Pacific Islands Forum. And I think it is him attempting to address what Pacific leaders have been saying for years, uh, which is that Australia needs to take better action on climate change and needs to do it now. And there has been this kind of amazing political movement happening in the Pacific and Mm. there's sort of a long history of activism in the Pacific, but I think it's kind of reached the leadership in the last few years where they... the, the presidents and prime ministers of these countries are incredibly outspoken on climate change and they are advocating to the UN and to other international bodies and they are directly um, challenging Australia to do more on this issue and it is a life or death issue it isn't some sort of hypothetical in the way that I think Australians are able to distance themselves from climate change sometimes these are very low-lying countries that are facing rising sea levels now Mm. so they have been very direct with Scott Morrison about what they want to have in the relationship between the Pacific and Australia. I think this is kind of a sidestep. We aren't doing anything more with our emissions. Actually, local emissions have risen in in recent years. So I think that there will be some pushback on this announcement. It's important and Australia is the largest aid donor to the Pacific. China has... um, has risen in its aid donations over the last few years but it's kind of nowhere near what Australia is pledging at the moment but I don't think that this is what they were asking for they were asking Mm. for us to take action for us to take responsibility for ourselves not for us to sort of give them more money to install um, you know levies and and these things are vital but Mm. it's also I think it needs to be coupled with action in Australia yeah it's more like mitigation for the risks that they're already facing um, and it does say uh, in regard to that 500 million that it is specifically to address climate change and oceans which is obviously really broad um, but you know I can see how when we look at it from a Pacific perspective as you say it's really not much um, given the time period that that funding actually covers in the number of countries it would be relevant for um, but also that like as you say again Australia should be and has always perhaps seen itself as a responsible global citizen who's meant to be doing the right thing by its neighbours and it would benefit Australia if we did have closer ties with our neighbours, respectful ties I think. Um, In terms of the Pacific, Scott Morrison when he first um, became leader prioritised this area as being one of his main areas of focus. A lot of people speculated it was because of uh, a growing Chinese influence in the region with a lot of, as you say, aid donations and Australia jumped in there very quickly to provide Fiji with the funding it needed for the underwater cable um, so that they had better internet. what are your thoughts around the China element in Australia's strategy and relationship with the Pacific? Yeah, I mean, I think 
there it is central to it the pacific step up as as they're calling it um is scott morrison's plan to kind of re-engage with the pacific which australia i think has had a really on and off relationship with the pacific but i would say it has had Australia has had quite a colonial mindset towards the Pacific for the majority of our relationship since Federation. And I think that there is a level of condescension to the relationship which frustrates Pacific leaders to no end. Mm. Um, and I, I think that even in this $500 million that we're handing over now, there is sort of a, a level of, you know, it's not a partnership. It's, it's, sort, of a, it's sort of a handing of money. And I, I, I think that that is, is frustrating, which has left the door open for China, who has been very um, ambitious in its aid funding and also through its Belt and Road Initiative, which is kind of this global um, infrastructure initiative that China has run over the past few years that has, I think, 60-something countries have signed up to it so far. Mm. And there are a lot of concerns with that about critical infrastructure being built by a foreign government or critical infrastructure that the country can't pay for and then has to hand back um, to the Chinese government. But I would say that Australia is kind of weighing into the Pacific to try and um, stop China's encroachment into that, that region. And I do think that it was largely triggered by that story that China wanted to um, open a military base in Vanuatu. And I feel like all of this kind of current flurry of interest in the Pacific can be traced back to that. So I feel like we are probably getting pressure from the US to do more in the Pacific to try and hold off China becoming more of an influence in that space. Mm. Yeah. And obviously the South China Sea is an ongoing issue that probably will not be not an issue for a number of years from now. Um, Let's bring in Andrew Hastie, who wrote a controversial opinion article about China. He is actually in a position of influence and knowledge. He has access to a lot of um, classified knowledge uh, from our security agencies. And so when he says something, uh, a lot of people would say, well, he's better informed than many others who wouldn't be in his position. Uh, he's the chair of the Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security. And um, what did Andrew Hastie say that was so controversial really about China and what has been the fallout because it seems like this has been now quite an ongoing discussion. Mm. So Andrew Hastie wrote an op-ed for the Sydney Morning Herald which was the idea of it was basically we need to be clear-eyed about China which is we need to see what's happening for what it is and I, you know I, I, I did the drum last night which is the first time I ever did it's terrifying but we were talking about this and I, I said that Three quarters of that was an actually an interesting analysis of what's going on with China. And then at some point he pivots and he starts invoking a historical parallel of the French not holding, um, not pushing back enough when Nazi Germany was on the rise. And I think that that historical parallel has um, really inflamed people because... Firstly, it's a clumsy parallel. I think any historical parallel is just kind of lazy writing because you lose all the nuance of the current situation. And, and there are a lot of things going on in this situation that, that are specific and, and you lose them when you try and sort of reach for some lofty, blunt, you know, historical parallel. But 
I also think, isn't it a rule of debating that if you invoke the Holocaust, you immediately lose the yep. debate? Like, I yes. just don't know who didn't tell Andrew Hastie that. But It's I, happening all the time, though. It, yeah, I mean... Even more with Trump, the rise of Trump. Everyone talks about populism or and people chucking around the word fascism. I mean, these all have very his, specific historical contexts that... I don't think can necessarily be directly transferred into the 21st century and certainly, you know, not between China and Australia, surely. Well, I think if you want to criticise China, you need to be specific. Mm. And I think that the distinction that needs to be made is between the choices that Beijing is making, the choices that Xi Jinping is making, and the, the lives of Chinese citizens or Chinese students studying in Australia or Chinese Australians, I think that we need to sort of cleave a very clear distinction between those two things and let's focus our our critique on specific policies that are being enacted by Xi Jinping's government. And if you want to be specific, like if we want to make a human rights argument, let's look at the Uyghur um, uh, detainment in in um, China, you know, one million people from Muslim Uyghur descent held in in camps in in China, and if if Andrew Hastie has a strong feeling that Australia needs to do more, well, we should be doing more on this issue. We should be taking a much stronger stance, and we should be advocating in international bodies for China to be opening up these camps to UN inspectors, mm-hmm. to be freeing people, to be um, you know ending that ending that crisis. Um, I just think that it was quite a lazy op-ed. He should have called for something currently that he wanted China to do rather than sort of reaching for this historical incendiary parallel. Yeah, it's interesting that really Australia has... The, the most that they've done on that Uyghur issue is to say that they're, quote, deeply concerned. And then when we've seen people who actually... Are believe they have family members being held over there um there is this reluctance for australia to intervene which is obviously quite distressing for the people who have a direct relationship with australia um, living here or even being citizens here i think what you've raised about china in particular around the people who are of Chinese background who've moved to Australia and live here and are citizens here and, um, you know, practice their beautiful culture and eat amazing food and, you know, the people who pay, like, thousands and thousands of dollars to study here and, you know, contribute so much to the universities that are, on you know, in Melbourne, for example. There's so many, um, you know, ties that aren't just economic between Australia and China. And I feel like in the political debate, when we're talking about America versus China, it's often put in terms of, well, China is our economic friend and we trade with them and they're our largest trading partner and then when we talk about America oh well they're our you know close cultural ally and military you know friend and there's all these other kind of ties that Australia has culturally with America that we're happy and proud to talk about Mm -hmm. but Australia and its politicians don't I don't think talk enough about the other strong ties that Australia has with China and people who you know come here from China or have grown up here um you know from a Chinese family like there's so much integration and links and beautiful sharing Mm. but that I mean that's messy right like yeah and I think this distinction of 
China is our economic ally and the US is our cultural ally. It's neat. It's mm. it's there's no crossover. It's a very easy message to sell and it's it sort of allows us to have both. And so I think that the government has very much committed itself to this neat distinction between their economic partner and their cultural partner. And they're not going astray from that because once you start acknowledging that there are strong cultural ties to China, which there are, and we do have strong economic ties to the US as well. Once we start acknowledging that this is messy, uh, it gets much, much harder to maintain those kind of two complicated relationships. Although I will say that Scott Morrison this week um, with the Pacific Islands Forum and everything that's happened post Hasty and China has acknowledged that these are complicated relationships and, and they're complex and we don't want to make them more complex is what he said. So I think... <laughs> what a classic. Uh, I, I think, you know, simplify, simplify, simplify is the approach of the foreign policy approach of this government. Like, let's strip it back. Let's not complicate things more than, than we need to do. Um, mm, it's actually very harmful, though, because... As we've seen, there's so much rhetoric now coming from the Chinese government saying, well, the relationship isn't very strong, actually, mm -hmm. because they, you're distancing yourself yeah, from yeah. us in a range of ways, including the Huawei issue. Sure. And I, I think that there is one important thing to say about this, which mm. is, you know, the, the frustration is that we, we tiptoe around China. That's what people say, right? Why do we have to tiptoe around Beijing's feelings? And... I would just suggest that it's not tiptoeing, it's just diplomacy. Mm -hmm. That's You have to play the game. You do have to be polite. You do have to kind of make these couch statements. That's how diplomacy works and it's a slow process, but I think it's more effective than sort of strongman rhetoric that gets you a headline but doesn't get you anywhere in, in policy or in hoping for free trade deals or in anything that you could possibly want in a relationship with another government. Yeah. I've got to say I'm quite glad that Maurice Payne is the Foreign Affairs Minister because she is quite level-headed and, uh, yeah, very rational. So it's good that there's someone who's clear-eyed sure. <laughs> representing but she's Australia. she's not at the uh, Pacific Islands Forum this week. That's only Alex Hawke, which is a key, mm. Morrison Backer and Scott Morrison. So I don't think that Maurice Payne is going to the PAF. Yes, I think she was She was the person last time and people criticised Scott Morrison for not going, which was interesting because I think he went to Indonesia instead. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's a segue. Thank you so much, Madison, for coming in to talk about federal politics. I really appreciate your time today. And Thanks It's for great to have me. you back on. Oh, thank you. It was great. I've been speaking with the editor of the Saturday paper, which, of course, you can pick up on a Saturday, uh, Madison Connaughton, and um, she just joined me to discuss federal politics and uh, the very interesting issues that we face in our region. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're tuned in to 3RRR FM. This show is Uncommon Sense. And coming up after this, I'm speaking with Professor John Burns, who uh, is... Well, he used to be the Dean of uh, the Faculty of Social Sciences at Hong Kong University and he's now a uh, Emeritus Professor at the same university and is an expert on uh, China, public administration in relation to China as well as Hong Kong. And, uh, of course, he lives in Hong Kong and uh, is going to be appearing at a forum at the University of Melbourne on Thursday. So that is coming up in under two minutes' time. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me 
all the way from Hong Kong via Skype, uh, Professor John Burns. He's an emeritus professor now and he has been based at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong and his areas of expertise include comparative politics and public administration and particularly looking at China, as in mainland China, as well as Hong Kong and party state relations, which, of course, is very interesting given the topics that we are to discuss. And he's the author and editor of many books. And uh, he's been writing some very interesting opinion pieces as well um, online. So I'm very excited now to have with me uh, Professor Burns and hopefully Skype is working. Hello there. Good morning. Morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Uh, maybe I'll start with an obvious question, which is that I believe you're currently in Hong Kong? Indeed, I am. <laughs> is there, um, in your mind, given that you have a, an event on at Melbourne University on Thursday, do you foresee any issues in terms of the uh, protests that are currently going on at the airport, which, um, as I'm sure you're aware, have disrupted flights, particularly yesterday? Yes, of course, there's always the possibility that I will not be able to make it. Um, but uh, when I checked um, earlier this morning, the, the airport, I mean, flights were boarding. There's a lot of cancellations, mm -hmm. to be sure. So, But also the protesters said that they had an intention to return. So it's a, it's a moving feast, as we say. Yes, it seems like it's evolved. It initially was slated as a three-day protest in the airport and there was still freedom of movement in terms of travellers getting to and from the terminals until uh, yesterday when it appeared like more protesters turned up to the airport and apparently um, essentially blocked the, the ability for passengers and travellers to get to where they needed to go. Yes, they had been in the arrivals area, but as more people turned up, more protesters turned up, they also flooded the departures area, and it, I think it was this, plus the difficulty of people getting to the airport, that convinced the airport authority to cancel flights yesterday. Indeed. Now, let's um, bring this back to... The last few months, I interviewed um, another person who's also based in Hong Kong a couple of months ago, Anthony DePiran, who's a lawyer over there, and we were talking a bit about the extradition bill, which of course was on the surface of it, the initial reason why we saw these uh, rounds of protests happening was that people were concerned around the extradition bill and what um, impact it would have in terms of people being prosecuted in China for criminal issues and of course the justice system and the political system of government being very different between uh, Hong Kong and China. Given your uh, great expertise and knowledge and understanding of um, the government of China and of Hong Kong, I'd really like uh, your, first of all, your 
bigger picture understanding of the China-Hong Kong relationship, which uh, is clearly fraught and uh, certainly has evolved since the original agreement was undertaken and uh, when Britain basically handed over Hong Kong and Hong Kong um, became, I guess, a separate entity from China with a future view um, and deal or arrangement to be brought back into mainland China. How has that uh, agreement been viewed from both sides, both China, the Chinese government, and also um, Hong Kongers and locals there in terms of this current round of protests? What are, what's the perception or the, um, the concern around, around that issue of, of moving back into to China, which to me, from an outsider, it seems like um, plays a strong part in the ongoing protests? Yes, I agree that it, the entire protest is about the relationship of Hong Kong to the mainland, I mean, as um, China. Um, I mean, if you look at it, um, the big picture from the mainland perspective, and I think from the overwhelming majority perspective in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a part of China. I mean, and so this is... Uh, uh, there's only a very small percentage of people who are say who are denying this. I would say, so from China's perspective, you know, Hong Kong is a part of China. Hong Kong should get on with its economic integration with the mainland. We have new policies to help Hong Kong do this. Also, Hong Kong is probably more marginalized, I would say, as time goes on. Its contribution, say, to GDP and to China's economic growth keeps declining. So th this is uh, from the mainland perspective. From Hong Kong's perspective, I think up until quite recently, say um, early last month, there were not five issues that people here were concerned with. They were basically four. I mean, and the extradition bill was one of the main ones. But I think people now see that the political system that we have here, which is an unreformed colonial political system, no reform, you know, uh, that this political system is not working for the people of Hong Kong. So this is a serious problem. The government here seems incapable of addressing this problem. And the on the mainland, um, we just get uh, strong rhetoric and bluster. Now, to be sure, in Hong Kong, we've seen a lot of violence and a lot of um, fighting between uh, radical protesters, I would say, and the police. Nobody in Hong Kong wants to see this, but the Hong Kong government and its backers on the mainland refuse to take responsibility for the chaos which the Hong Kong government has caused. I think this has become the the critical issue, this one of accountability. That doesn't mean democracy. I mean, being accountable is a, a very, very important thing on the mainland and in Hong Kong. And yet we see the Hong Kong government um, studiously refusing to be accountable for this mess. And our colonial era political institutions basically require that the government itself decide 
decides when and on what terms it will be accountable. The law requires that it be accountable to the Hong Kong SAR as well as to the central government. That part of the law is not being implemented. Yes, and it's interesting in one of your opinion pieces, which was called Hong Kong Police Breed Mistrust and Uncertainty with Selective Law Enforcement, you talk about the fact that on July 1, there was a a major event, which I'm sure many people would have seen on the television, uh, when the uh, Legislative Council complex uh, was stormed by a select group of protesters and uh, many of the areas of the building were defaced and uh, graffitied and damaged. And um, you talk a bit about the inconsistent application of the law and the varying levels of force that have been used at different points in this um, protest period. What is your view in terms of the Hong Kong police and also the Hong Kong government and and their approach or strategy uh, in terms of dealing with the protesters? Is is it kind of just like, um, you know, are they washing their hands of it or putting their head in the sand? Or how is this kind of level of um, apparent chaos being allowed to occur? Well, I think you're correct. If you look at the situation on July 1 when the... Uh, when the, I would call it a slow motion break-in to Let's Go, the police were all there, and they stood around watching it. Now, this Mm. is, uh, to my way of thinking, this is uh, absolutely incredible. But, of course, this was a political decision. This was the government's decision to do this. And I think they hoped that the protesters would just discredit themselves and then somehow go away. We also had another case of the police failing to enforce the law and this is when triad gangsters attacked protesters um, later in the month and the police were nowhere to be found in fact people have said that the police were colluding with them although the police denied it they said Oh, well, you know, we were uh, we were overwhelmed or something like this. So there are these uh, inconsistencies. Now, however, I think the situation has changed. We have very, very strong endorsement from the central government for strong policing. And this, um, from the last week or so, this is what we see. And so this... This, and I would say the police have become smarter. Um, two days ago, they showed up at the protests dressed like protesters and then um, arrested protesters So for riot. Which, I mean, I'm the kind of person that thinks we have the law, the law should be enforced. I mean, and if you don't enforce the laws or you unevenly enforce the laws, this just breeds mistrust of the police and of the government. And this is what has happened. So we have we have the police, we have very high levels of mistrust of the police, I would say. We have a community that's divided on the role of the police and whether they should be supported or not. Um, so this is this is very severe. I mean, how uh, and and we have the government, which is basically relying only on the police and policing to stay where it is. I mean, I think this is ridiculous. The community, the government needs the cooperation of the community, and what the protesters are saying is 
we are denying this to you. So this this makes the entire operation of Hong Kong, the governance of Hong Kong, um, getting things done in Hong Kong, difficult. Yes, you do highlight an, a really important point there about the Hong Kong government um, and the fact that there was a bit of a contrast, really, we saw at the beginning of those protests that Carrie Lam, you know, came out and did a, a midnight press conference one of the nights and was up there fronting the press and taking questions about the extradition bill. Now it seems that the government is far less visible and, as you say, relying on the Hong Kong police and probably the Hong Kong police is getting... Um, a lot of uh, pushback and fallout from the actions that the government, as you say, is relying on them to take. Uh, in terms of the Hong Kong government actually acting as a government, what have they been doing in the past week, I guess visibly or apparently uh, to you? Uh, this is why, I, you know, to me it seems a bit like a parallel universe. If you look at what the Hong Kong government is doing you know, it's opening beaches, closing beaches, inspecting seafood and all the other things that, of course, the community needs. But they are failing to address the accountability issue. They are failing to take responsibility for the mess that Hong Kong is in now. And I think this is the, this is the most serious problem and the most serious failure of the Hong Kong government. No one has resigned, for example. No government officials have resigned. No advisors to the government have ad have resigned. You know, in the press, they say, oh, we did nothing wrong. I mean, this is totally and utterly at odds with community sentiment. So they're relying on the police. They have very strong backing from the central government, which yesterday referred to the protests as, you know, elements of terrorism. So this is, this is a strong condemnation from the central government, and yet we see the government invisible, incapacitated, and, the, and no moral authority. Indeed, and if we bring in uh, China and the central government that you've just referenced there, uh, there have been reports that um, essentially Chinese police from the mainland have been assembling uh, close to the border of Hong Kong and conducting drills and exercises which uh, seem to be being used as a, as a psychological tactic, um, something that's meant to, I guess, threaten uh, the protesters and suggest that uh, the Chinese government isn't taking this lying down and that uh, just because they haven't taken a clear um, and overt action doesn't mean that they um, don't have a, a strong position and they haven't been um, doing things in the background. What is uh, your view on China, mainland China and the government and how they've been managing this crisis? Because as you say, essentially Hong Kong is part of China and it will eventually, according to the agreement, um, essentially essentially merge into China and become um, part of the the China, which is the, the state that it's currently in, the major state, which, you know, is an economic powerhouse in this world and, and also, as you rightly highlight, has uh, overtaken Hong Kong in terms of its um, economic influence in the region. So, yes, I, I do think the central government and maybe elements here in Hong Kong are 
um, demonstrating, you know, through videos and through a strong language, the, the capacity of the central government to restore order here. And they would use the People's Liberation Army or the People's Armed Police or something like this. And so we see repeatedly the stories about how important and how big this force is and what it is capable of. And this is a kind of intimidation and threats on one hand, I would say. They have the legal um, authority and responsibility to do this under certain conditions, such as chaos in Hong Kong, where the local government is unable to manage the situation. So, um, but, but let's be clear about this. If the PLA were were to be brought into Hong Kong in large numbers to restore order, this would involve martial law, it would involve curfews, it would involve shutting down the internet, shutting down the media. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I mean, it would be a very drastic step, and this would have also consequences for the economy, for investors um, in Hong Kong, and for people that are doing business in Hong Kong from overseas. So this would be a very serious matter. I do not believe the central government wants to do this. Um, uh, I don't know about some of the more radical protesters, whether they are pushing this, uh, pushing for this to happen, but I don't believe the community in Hong Kong would like to see this. This would be an absolute, utter disaster for Hong Kong, and the f governance arrangements that we have now, one country, two systems, would just be destroyed. So I agree with those people that hold this view. This is... Uh, uh, this is uh, very serious. I, I hope that the police have the but that the police have the capacity to manage this. Our local police, but you have to remember, with levels of trust, distrust, basically, very high of the police in the community, this makes their jobs very hard. And why is the distrust? because of the political use that the government, the central and local governments, have and continue to make of policing. Yes, that's an excellent point. I'm interested in the fact that you, um, in your work, have been involved in universities and been around uh, the Hong Kong University campus for a number of years, and obviously your colleagues uh, also are there and beyond. In terms of the protesters and those Hong Kongers who are involved um, most frequently are engaged in these protests in different uh, locations around Hong Kong for the last two months, who are they and do you think uh, a number of them do um, have a background of being a student perhaps or engaged at a tertiary um, education institution or, or is it much broader than that in terms of the societal engagement on the ground in these protests? Because in terms of the uh, international media coverage of it, there's uh, a lot of focus on the fact that these uh, protesters are, um, you know, younger than the average um, Hong Konger. Yes, uh, I'm, I do think that there are, you know, a lot of university students. We have eight universities. We have a lot of other higher education institutions. It's a summer break, right, here in Hong Kong. So that means uh, June, July, and August, they are, um, they are not attending classes. 
you know, the students at my university who live in halls of residence, dormitories, uh, basically are permanently on New York time. I mean, they they sleep during the day and they are awake at night. So the worst excesses of this stuff happens in the evening and at night. However, we should be very clear about this. When the police arrested rioters, so maybe there was a fairly substantial group of people who were students, but there also were members of the community. And we can, you know, a Cathay Pacific pilot was arrested and people coming from various uh, various different backgrounds, from um, employed, unemployed, and all this kind of thing, men and women, both of this. And then we can see communities where these confrontations with the police are happening, supporting the protesters, coming out and denouncing the police and uh, providing supplies to the protesters uh, um, and this kind of thing. So um, there is wide community support. If you look at opinion polling, then you can see that especially to withdraw the bill and to have an independent inquiry of police behavior, these these two issues, which the protesters are demanding, have almost universal support in Hong Kong. And even the even the central government has said that, well, when things die down, uh, maybe we do need to have uh, an independent inquiry. As we've seen in video investigations, there have been various um, police, you know, misbehavior conducted in the course of the last two months, and this needs to be investigated. Indeed, there's been a lot of um, use of tear gas and other um implements that have certainly damaged um, or injured a number of protesters and we've seen some pretty sophisticated tactics by the protesters in order to protect each other and uh, garner supplies and the communication uh, methods that they have are also quite sophisticated. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts around uh, the protesters and the fact that initially they had a very clear aim or ask of the government, which was to entirely withdraw the extradition bill and for Carrie Lam to resign. Uh, what are the demands, if there are clear demands, of the protest groups now, um, or has it morphed into something uh, less clear? Uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, from early July, the, one of the demands was the need for political reform in Hong Kong. As I have mentioned before, we continue to operate with unreformed colonial-era political institutions that disenfranchise the vast majority of people in Hong Kong. And so I think one of the demands from early July, maybe late June, is for universal suffrage to elect our chief executive, universal suffrage to elect our uh, legislature. So this is a new one. Some of the other demands, such as for Carrie Lamb to step down or amnesty for protesters, I think have less community support than the withdrawing the bill and an independent inquiry. 
And on the political reform issue, you know, we tried this in 2014, 2015, and it failed for, that's another issue, but it's for various reasons. And I, I personally believe, and I, you know, Carrie Lamb has said so herself, that we have fundamental problems with the structure of our governance, and these definitely need to be addressed. She would probably say, this is not the time to do this, we need to restore order first, and the central government would say that as well. But in order to restore order, in my view, I mean, the Carrie Lamb government has to own the chaos. They have to take responsibility for the chaos. They have to be accountable. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the universal suffrage. On the mainland, I mean, you know, the Communist Party holds leaders to account. Why can't they do the same thing here in Hong Kong? That's very true. I'm interested in mainland China because obviously they have close connections with the Hong Kong government administration. Do you think there is any reason uh, perhaps to suggest that the reason why Hong Kong uh, hasn't come out and owned this issue, political um, ongoing chaos, as you say, as their own issue, um, perhaps because the Chinese government doesn't want to um, see a back down or a a loss of face um, that would then implicate them, I I guess, in the sense that if anyone decides to start protesting, uh, that they're going to get their way. My understanding is that the core issue is setting up an independent inquiry into the behaviour of the police. The police have adamantly um, uh, denounced this and said that this is totally unacceptable to them. They haven't give many re- given reasons for this, but that's what they've said. Carrie Lam is relying on the police to stay where she is. She needs the police. The central government needs the police. And so I think we have a, we have a huge police force, 30,000 uh, people under uniform, and uh, they are—they uh, have strongly opposed any such um, commission of inquiry. So this is the most popular demand from the in the community. This is one of the key issues that all sorts of people in the community, political elites, economic elites, have said we need. Even the central government has said that we could look into this after order is restored. But because the government, both the central and the local government, are depending on the police to stay in power in Hong Kong, and the police are so opposed to this, we're at this standoff. Mm. I really appreciate that you've (laughs) summarised and revealed that crux of the issue so well. I really appreciate that because it's uh, certainly much more difficult to understand at a distance. In terms of the uh, political dynamics that exist, as well as the economic dynamics between um, the central government, the mainland China and Hong Kong, I'm really interested in um, how those areas have changed um, and particularly the south of China being so um, affluent in many pockets, in particular um, there's a couple of provinces which have really risen to prominence over the the last number of years, um, thinking particularly 
Shenzhen in Guangdong, uh, Guangzhou, which is also in Guangdong. There's a, a number of areas in the southern parts of China that have really risen in part of this, you know, economic um, uplift of the Chinese economy. And as we've seen as well, Hong Kong is still an important um, central business area and it is a place where a lot of uh, Western companies reside and place their offices as, as well as in Shanghai and Beijing. What's your view around how China in particular has uh, grown and what kind of, I guess, um, status that it now has in relation to perhaps Hong Kong and, and it's, um, you know, clearly not reliant on... Um, uh, Hong Kong for any sense of uh, national pride or economic um, stability? So, yes, I mean, since the, um, you know, 1997, when Hong Kong became a Hong Kong special administrative region of China, we have seen the economy on the mainland just really boom. It has been exceptional growth, exceptional um, uh, reduction in poverty levels and all sorts of things like this. And Hong Kong, on the other hand, I would say, has, um, has atrophied to a certain extent. But let's remember that there are, in my view, two things that, that um, two areas where Hong Kong can contribute to the mainland. One, is in the financial area, raising capital and this kind of thing, and the, Hong Kong is well known for its finance. And the other one is something that is being challenged today as we speak, the rule of law. Now, in Hong Kong, we have the common law system, and we pride ourselves that laws are enforced and equality before the law and all of this kind of thing. And I think the central government and the mainland appreciates these two things. There have been efforts to integrate Hong Kong more with the mainland economically, and there's a lot of immigration. Our water comes integration. Our, our water comes from the mainland, our food comes from the mainland, and so many people in Hong Kong have businesses on the mainland. The central government has um, uh, introduced a Greater Bay Area uh, plan or project that would bring Hong Kong and Macau together with Guangdong Province um, into a new kind of economic partnership um, that would focus here on the south. I think this is an excellent move. I think Hong Kong should try to take advantage of this. Um, but as long as we have this kind of instability and an irresponsible government um, and unreformed political institutions, I just don't see this happening. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, given that, as you say, your political system doesn't really allow for universal suffrage. There are elements of political engagement, but there isn't a clear way for the people to hold the Hong Kong government to account, apart from public protest and these types of political actions that they're taking. And uh, and clearly, the government um, maybe they've got they're getting the message, but they're just not actually uh, acting on 
on it and responding in the way that one would expect a government to respond to such large-scale um, protests. I'm really interested in the fact that you say that there is widespread support uh, by the, the general Hong Kong community for these protests, or at least a lot of the, the main demands of the protesters. What does that mean for um, Hong Kong moving forward, even if there is eventually a standoff or a tipping point that's reached and we see... Uh, the government make concessions and perhaps the police are investigated. Where to from here? I know you mentioned that political reform is, you know, fraught with issues. Do you think that there is any likelihood in the future for uh, political reform of some kind to take place before um, Hong Kong is meant to be um, brought back into mainland China? I do think so, because I think there is pretty much universal recognition, whether it's in the central government or in um, Hong Kong, that political reform is absolutely necessary. Carrie Lam herself has talked about the fundamental problems of Hong Kong, and I think this is one, this is the key fundamental reform uh, reform that's required to enable the people of Hong Kong to make their government more accountable. So I do believe that down the road this will have to be addressed again. We tried in 2014 and tried 2014-2015 and there was opposition to that at the time um, and that opposition's succeeded in blocking it Uh, to my regret i must say i think if had we had a uh, a chief executive who was elected by universal suffrage regardless of whether um she was or he was nominated by the communist party it would not we wouldn't be in this situation now Um, I'd also just like to touch on a couple of the major developments that have been happening in China in the last year or so. We saw uh, President Xi Jinping basically announced that he would be president uh, for the foreseeable future, that he would remove presidential terms so there wouldn't be a clear transition to another leader anytime soon. And um, there is a whole range of, uh, I guess, myth around Xi Jinping. There's ways that people describe him like Xi Dada. I'm interested in uh, how the Chinese government has changed because one of your areas of interest, of course, is public administration and uh, the operation of the Chinese government. How has that evolved? Because from a a distance, it appears that uh, it's kind of been clamping down more and more on um, kind of its influence or authority in uh, various policy areas. And we've seen uh, moves away from, um, I guess, opening up power or power sharing. And then on the the other side, we've seen a big clamp down on corruption uh, by Xi Jinping and some of the pushback that he's received uh, for doing that. Yes, I think this is absolutely true. She has become president for life. And, you know, these arrangements for the political system on the mainland were made Uh, with uh, certain assumptions in mind by the Communist Party on the mainland, I would say. And one of these assumptions was that the external environment would be stable and not challenging. Well, we can see that this has certainly turned out not to be the case. So we have, uh, dare I say it, Mr. Trump 
wandering around, uh, causing all kinds of problems, I would say, for China in terms of trade and in terms of its economy. And what does this mean? I think it means that Xi's position as president for life is under challenge. And this is precisely because you know, you could re you could seriously ask the question: How well has he done in managing these external challenges? We see the United States challenging on trade on Taiwan, on the South China Sea. Um, we see potential um, problems in on the Korean Peninsula. So there are all this kind of thing going on, and this has probably had an impact on China, on the mainland economy, on the economic growth, which is slowing. And so that's going on on one hand. On the other hand, the Communist Party has launched a blistering attack on liberalism and Western political ideas on the mainland. Now, this is curious from the perspective of Hong Kong, because our basic law basically guarantees these freedoms and sort of Western liberalism kind of thing. We see this on a daily basis. People have the right to protest, they have the right to assemble, they have the right to free media, and a right to free speech, and all these kind of things. And in Hong Kong, you know, these things mean what they say. On the mainland, we have many of these same things in the Chinese constitution, and they have an entirely different meaning. So we can see this is another part of this dynamic. The mainland's economy is being challenged. She is being challenged by the external environment. And so this, I think, makes the protest in Hong Kong, or revolt, I would say it's a kind of revolt against the local leader here, all the more damaging from the perspective of the mainland. Mm. Um, in terms of the, you mentioned foreign policy issues and of course uh, the US and China having this uh, quote-unquote trade war and there's been a number of um, issues that have ramped up in the last couple of weeks and Donald Trump has really raised the stakes again. Uh, that's clearly a major problem, not just for China and America and Hong Kong, but also for Australia. And not to make it all about us, but I would like your thoughts on the relationship between China and Australia, because Australia has been having um, a very consistent and ongoing dis public discussion by its politicians at the moment about our relationship to China and the Chinese government in particular and there seems to be a, a deterioration in the relationship between the two sides. Um, has there been any suggestion or um, thought on your side, you know, seeing both sides of um, both mainland China and Hong Kong around the perception of Australia and Australia's actions, given that we um, sit, I guess, often in the middle between China and America on a number of uh, foreign policy issues? Um, I'm not so aware of that. I mean, if you look at the protests in Hong Kong, you can see very strangely and, in my view, completely wrongly, you see a very small number of protesters with American or British flags. I don't really understand yeah. where this is coming from. Uh, so far, I haven't seen any Australian flags uh, uh, in the in the protests. Um 
you know, I am aware a little bit of the controversy in Australia over Australia's relationship to the mainland, um, the extent to which Australia's economy is dependent on the mainland, the extent to which Australian politics, I mean, Chinese, uh, yeah, the extent to which Australian politics is influenced by um, you know, lobbying from China. But let's remember, in our open political systems, such as Australia or the U.S., I mean, foreign governments lobby all the time, you know. And so th this is one of the things that we uh, kind of expect, I would guess. So we have to be careful that in cases of this kind of lobbying or this kind of the attempt by China to exert influence in the uh, in open political and economic systems that we don't become racist about it. Mm. That is to say, we don't condemn all ethnic Chinese simply because of this. I think this would be it would be wrong, morally wrong. It would be extremely stupid because Ch uh, Chinese have so much to contribute. You know, so. This, I see a little elements of this um, going on in the U.S. especially. I think this is completely wrong. Um, and uh, so I, I wouldn't, would not like to see this happening in Australia either. Yeah, certainly from a, a local perspective here, I know a number of uh, people who of a Chinese background who are concerned about the kind of rhetoric that Australia has been using because it does lump uh, people of Chinese descent or people who are Chinese citizens all in the one group and conflating them with the Communist Party and the Chinese government, which of course is... Uh, a very unhelpful thing to do and it also really does alienate uh, people in Australia and make them feel separate. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree and this, of course, is the kind of thing that I was talking about. Mm. I mean, if we look at Chinese, uh, Chinese, you know, there are ethnic Chinese on the one hand and then there are Chinese citizens on the other hand and the Chinese citizens may include non-ethnic Chinese such as myself I am a Chinese citizen and so I uh, but I'm you could say part of an ethnic minority group and so there are lots of these people so I would not like to see anywhere that um, China's um, China rising and China's attempts to influence political systems, especially open political systems, which we, we see all over the place. I mean, this is what we expect foreign governments to do, and we we have to manage that. We have to be aware of this, you know, um, that, that we don't denigrate ethnic Chinese Australian citizens who, you know, this is, would be just totally wrong. Mm. John, I really thank you for your time and your insights have been invaluable and it's been fascinating to hear your ideas and, and thoughts and I really appreciate your time and experience today. I'm happy to be here.
I've been speaking with Professor John Burns, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Hong Kong, and he will be appearing this Thursday, the 15th of August, at the University of Melbourne in the Spot Building, which is the Commerce Building near the Law School, and it will be 5.30pm till 7pm, and it features Louisa Lim, John Burns and Christine Wong talking about Hong Kong's political crisis, and I think it's going to be a fantastic event if uh, this conversation was anything to go by, I do hope you get to head along. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Without further ado, I'm going to now speak with the wonderful Anthony Grayling, or AC Grayling, as you may know him from his books. Uh, Anthony and I sat down uh, in 2017 in about, I think it was April, perhaps, to discuss a few of his um, areas of interest, including The Origins of Humanism, The Age of Genius, which is one of uh, his books from 2016, and also uh, War and An Inquiry, which was from 2017. And uh, we had such a wonderful response to that discussion that uh, I was very excited to see that he's back in Australia to share his ideas and uh, also share some of his uh, knowledge with the rest of this country. We're going to be in particular talking about his new book, The History of Philosophy, which has just been released recently. I've uh, seen it in readings, of course, and many other bookstores. And uh, it is a pretty um, weighty, literally, and in-depth, really, detailed look. I mean, certainly it's pretty hard to fit uh, the whole of philosophy or at least the the highlights of it into one book. So um, there's only so much one would be able to do. But uh, we're going to try and uh, distill some of the great uh, findings and ideas that Anthony explores in this book uh, for you. And I hope you do enjoy this chat. So I welcome now Anthony Grayling, AC Grayling, who uh, joins me and uh, he's on the phone and uh, is a, as I should mention, a professor of philosophy and uh, has a number of other roles which will come up in the course of this interview. Hi there. Hi Amy, hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, very, very well and very delighted to be back in Australia. I love being here. Yes, it does seem like you have um, fairly frequent trips. What in particular do you like about Australia? Well, I should mention that uh, my brother lives here. He lives in Sydney. So, um, but because I, I, I tend to be uh, a little over prolific on, on the book front, <laughs> I've always got a book that I can bring to the literary festivals here, which I, I love to do, um, get an opportunity to travel around a little bit, to meet lots of people here. Uh, it's really very, very refreshing. I mean, I know, you know, when you live in a country, you think well, you can see all the faults and difficulties and so on. But when you're a visitor, to a, particularly to a place like Australia, which has so many good things about it, it's, it's really wonderful and at the moment I can tell you it's really wonderful to be as far away as one can be from the United Kingdom. Yes uh, I definitely could understand that. Uh, I interviewed Owen Jones from The Guardian um, in person actually a couple of months back and uh, just aired his interview last week and uh, he had some pretty strong words to say about uh, British politics as well so I hope we can pick up on some of what he raised with you a bit later in this interview Um, Uh, because I think it is fascinating your involvement um, in these campaigns to stop Brexit, um, and it would be great to discuss that even further. 
Yeah, good. Good, good, good. Well, let's dive straight into the history of philosophy. Um, this book, based on other interviews I've heard you uh, give, clearly is a very long-term project and has obviously come to fruition now. What... Um, provoked you or thought um, made you think that you might want to conduct a wide-ranging history of a philosophy and I must say not just uh, Western philosophy there is a, a broad range of thinkers in this uh, this book what really drove you to do this because as we know um, a number of people have I guess attempted to distill some of these great thinkers in various formats and it comes with its own set of challenges Indeed it does, yes. Well, of course, the, uh, the, the philosophy throughout its history has been much more uh, for the general interested, uh, um, you know, reader. Most people are quite concerned, in a way, to make sense of life and to make sense of the world that we're in. And they would very much like to um, listen to and then become a participant in conversations about, you know, what exists, uh, whether there is a a meaning or a purpose to individual existence, questions about the good, questions about the nature of society. And so right from the very beginnings of uh, philosophy, this has been an important part of the overall conversation. Now, admittedly, a few of the great figures in philosophy have... um, gone so deep into their subjects that they become very technical and recondite. But this is something that everybody can be interested in and perhaps should be interested in. So to to survey this wonderful conversation that humankind has had with itself about all the great questions that matter to us in a way that is clear and accessible and provides a really good platform to anybody who wants to go deeper into it. That, that, that's something which I think is a, is a very worthwhile motivation. So for a long, long time now, in fact, the book itself it, uh, takes about 10 years to write as a sort of background project, but I've been doing other books as well. But really, it's the kind of distillation of, of a lifetime's interest and commitment both to philosophy itself, but also to the teaching, to the communication of philosophy. Indeed, and uh, you are the master of the new College of Humanities, the Humanities in London, and have a range of interactions with philosophy at an educational level. Certainly, from a personal perspective, I know the great value that uh, studying philosophy can give uh, one's life and certainly completely alter uh, one's perception of the world and how one operates in the world pretty much automatically um, when one's exposed to some really interesting thoughts or theories and that certainly was the case for me uh, when I encountered existentialism, when I encountered Plato and his account of the tripartite soul. There are so many interesting uh, theories and thoughts and questions that arise in philosophy that are, as you say, essential to how we live our lives and um, and to live our lives in a better way in some cases. In terms of the educational value that philosophy has, what do you think um, that the society more broadly might be missing in terms of its exposure to philosophy at this general readership level because often we see philosophy can be quite removed um, in terms of its accessibility. You've mentioned their language but also just uh, you know, practical accessibility of one often needing to do a short course or attend university to have uh, a true exposure to these kind of ideas. Yes, I think there are two major values, really. One is uh, 
sort of general one, which is that um, when you read about a variety of, of views, of explorations of ideas, for example, about lives that are really genuinely worth living, which are full of purpose and significance for the people living them, or in thinking about how best to organize a society so that it is just and fair and uh, everybody can participate in it and have opportunities in it. The variety of ideas that uh, you get from, say, the public debate at any point in history tends to be a bit limited. But if you look uh, across the landscape of philosophy, you see other perspectives, other insights, other suggestions, which can feed into one's own thinking and help one to be you know, more critical, more uh, evaluatory, uh, and to see some other possibilities. It's always important you know, to have a wider horizon of view about these matters. But I'll give you a particular example. Um, the, the, the great interest that people uh, sometimes find in philosophical views when all that they've ever been exposed to is, for example, a particular kind of religious outlook. Uh, so they might have been brought up uh, a Catholic or a uh, Jew, or they've gone to a school, a Methodist school, <clears throat> and they don't realize that there are these alternative ways, other ways of thinking about the good. One very big, uh, uh, interesting the theme these days is Stoicism. <clears throat> now, the Stoic philosophers of uh, antiquity, of the later part of antiquity, well, over 500 years, the educated people of the Roman Empire and the Hellenic world um, cleave to, to Stoicism, which has a very simple but a very deep teaching. What it says is, with respect to those things that you cannot control, things like earthquakes and tsunamis and diseases and uh, growing older, you must face them with courage. But with respect to those things that are within you and you have some possibility of, of influencing, like your own fears, your own appetites and desires, you should try to cultivate some degree of self-mastery. And if you lived with courage to the outer and some degree of self-mastery to the inner, then, they say, you would live with nobility. And even though that, that seems like a very simple uh, doctrine, it, it's actually a very powerful one, because if you adopted it and tried to live by it, you would live with an increased nobility, as the Stoics say. Yes, and uh, there are a number of quite well-known philosophers associated with Stoicism, such as Marcus Aurelius, who um, his meditations, as you write in the book, was a private diary written when he was with his army on the troubled and dangerous Danube frontier in the years uh, between 170 to 80 CE. It's uh, really interesting that there are a number of uh, expressions of Stoicism in, in its history and you delineate between early Stoicism and then and later Stoicism, which also featured uh, one of my favourites, which is Seneca. Um, what are some of the interesting features of later Stoicism um, from a couple of those thinkers that we've just mentioned? Well, you've mentioned, uh, you've mentioned Seneca there, Marcus Aurelius, and also, of course, Epictetus, who was a, a slave, uh, and uh, whose um, writings uh, and uh, teachings on uh, Stoicism proved to be very, very influential. It's so interesting to see the range of people from a slave to an emperor who found this a uh, very powerful way of thinking about how to live their lives. Now, the thing about later Stoicism is that it focused very much on the question of how, uh, as an individual, one, one can live with uh, um, a sense of purpose, but also with a sense of, of, of true fortitude, because uh, at that time, um, the world around people in the Roman Empire was unsettled and uncertain. There were uh, pressures, wars, conflicts along the borders. Uh, things were changing. The outer world seemed 
so so fractured and, 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 and so full of uh, uncertainties that the reliance on the inner, on seeking what the, uh, the ancients called ataraxia, which means some sense of inner stability or peace of mind, was very important. And the Stoic philosophy provides that. And you notice that it does so by calling on the resources of a human individual herself or himself. That is, it doesn't call on the, the aid of the gods or, or something external to the individual, but says that each of us, as in an individual, can live this kind of life, this, this life of, of noble fortitude, even in difficult times. And you talk about the fact that it has such a practical application, that it's been utilised by people across the centuries in order to tap into that internal fortitude and have uh, a more generalised peace of mind and only, um, I guess, focus on those things of which are in your control. It's I've noticed really recently that we've seen an influx of books about um, how to be a Stoic and giving, a, I guess, a guide or almost a self-help guide as to how to apply some of the thoughts and ideas of writers, philosophers like uh, Aurelius. I have just saw a tweet by one of our listeners who said she's currently reading his meditations and finds that it is really helpful. What, uh, in your idea, when you were writing this uh, history of philosophy, did you, when you were encountering these ideas, think of um, some of the ways in which these ideas have affected your life or might affect um, those around you and their practical application? Oh, very much so, yes. Now, you, you remember we had a wonderful conversation a couple of years ago about humanism on your show. And, uh, of course, Stoicism is very much a, a part of the humanistic tradition. Stoicism arises from uh, a great insight offered by Socrates, who's a tremendously significant figure in the history of philosophy. He himself didn't write anything or publish anything, but his disciples, principally, of course, Plato, communicated uh, his ideas. And uh, one of his very key ideas is that the life truly worth living, the good and worthwhile life, is the life which you have thought about, you've considered and chosen it. Um, he recognized that, as we all do, that good lives, that is, you know, I'm not talking about a pious life or a life of lots of parties and so on, but, but a life that feels good to live, feels full of achievement and satisfaction, is one that has good relationships in it as well. They, they lie at the very heart of the best kinds of lives. And, and Socrates said, you must, in order to be living such a life, you, you must think about what you can offer yourself in, in the way of your talents and capacities for, 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 for living well, for living thoughtfully, for doing things that are genuinely valuable in themselves as you see them. And this is a, a very subversive view, despite seeming so simple, uh, because most people through most of history have been told that there is a one-size-fits-all answer to the question of what is the good and meaningful life. You know, all the great ideologies, all the great religions have said, we've got the answer and it applies to everybody. But, but Socrates' challenge was that each one of us individually has to make these choices and do this thinking for ourselves. And that is quite a subversive thought. Well, that is the thought that inspired the Stoics. They thought that the, the, the good life, that the Stoical life, is one that the individual works out for herself or himself and applies and uh, does so, again, from within the resources of himself or herself.
Mm. I'm so glad you mentioned Socrates because he's a much-loved figure in philosophy and I think a lot of people who read Plato's uh, dialogues really feel like they get to know him in those dialogues, his personality and his drive for being and uh, conducting philosophical inquiry. And many people might have heard um, the so- Socratic question or the, and the Socratic method. Uh, in terms of what we understand, of Socrates and his constant, um, sometimes perceived as annoying ability to reveal uh, people's ignorance or perhaps lack of reflection. What are some of the features of Socrates that to you stand out as being uh, particularly important and uh, in some ways um, lovable? Well, we, we learn uh, most, of course, about Socrates from the early dialogues of Plato, where Socrates' humor, his very down-to-earth approach to things. That, that for, for example, there's a wonderful um, dialogue called The Carmides, a very early uh, Platonic dialogue, where Pay, uh, Socrates has just come back from the wars, uh, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars. He fought at the Battle of Petidiae, and when he got back to, to Athens, he asked his friends, um, who, who is the most admired youth in Athens today? to remember that the Athenian the Athenians had a rather different view of things uh, from, from contemporary sensibility. And they all said, oh, well, there's a very beautiful youth called Carmody. So Socrates said, oh, well, let's go along and, and see him. Because I'd, I'd love not, not only to see why he is so admired for his physical beauty, but I would like to know whether he has that even more important thing, which is mental beauty, that, you know, whether, whether his mind has a, a, a high quality as well. And so he has a conversation with this youth, and he says, uh, um, when I looked down the, the front of his tunic, I, I felt stirred. So <laughs> he was a very human uh, person, and he comes across as a, a very down-to-earth sort of person. But the really key thing about him was the challenge. Now, you mentioned the fact that he, he showed his fellow Athenians that they hadn't really thought very clearly or thought very deeply about the ideas that they took themselves to be living by. So he would say to people, what do you think really matters uh, in, in a human individual? And they would say, well, it should be truthful, and they should be courageous, and they should seek to live the good life, and, and so on. And then he would say to them, well, what do you mean by those ideas? What do you mean by courage and by truth and by goodness? And pretty soon they'd find out that they were just using the words without really having given it much thought. He himself was keen mainly to show people that that it's important to think these things through and to do so for themselves. That was his great purpose, was to sting people, as he put it. He was like a gadfly, stinging people into really giving some thought to things. Because he anticipated by a very long time uh, a a remark, which uh, I expect everybody knows, uh, from Bertrand Russell, who said, most people would rather die than think, and most people do. (laughs) Oh, couldn't be any more true, which is sometimes disturbing. Um, It's interesting that you're talking about the youth of Athens and he uh, very famously met his demise by being sentenced to death um, for being um, perhaps a a bad influence, supposedly, on the youth of Athens for, quote, impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens. Um, But he certainly took it in his stride um, and and 
was resigned to his fate. Uh, but it was it's interesting that someone who was so thought-provoking and constantly challenging uh, people in society for so long uh, met with that kind of backlash at the end. What are your thoughts on that, the way that he died and, and how such a, an important philosopher met um, with criticism? Well, you see, uh, those among his fellow Athenians who um, were in political power at the time of of his death, or just before it anyway, were uh, concerned um, uh, about the fact that he was getting not just the youth, but but certainly the youth also, to to think for themselves and to ask challenging questions and to be discontented with the status quo and to to ask awkward questions about, well, why why are you guys in charge and, and why are you getting us to think this way about things instead of that way about things. Just getting a debate going, just, you know, stirring up some discussion and some noise in the society to get ideas refreshed and, and looked at again. And, and this, uh, you know, kind of um, getting everybody to think was precisely what those then in charge didn't want to happen. Think of the comparability in today's China, for example, in the People's Republic of China. The very last thing that uh, President Xi would want is for um, the youth of China to start saying, hang on a second, you know, well, why, why are things organized this way? Uh, why, why can't we have certain other kinds of, uh, of um, views about how society ought to be run? He was in exactly that position. He was stirring things up, and for that reason they felt that they had to silence him. And he won this tremendous victory in a way, because actually what they wanted him to do, having condemned him, was they wanted him to run away. They wanted him to escape. They left the door of the prison open. He said, I'm going to abide by the law. Sentence me to death. I will accept the sentence. Mm. It's uh, it's amazing, really, to think about it. And as you say, the historical context is very important for that kind of um, view that was held, which is that his uh, method is very subversive. And when you start thinking critically for yourself, you do have a whole range of questions. And I'm interested in the, the fact that Socrates and Plato very much disliked a particular group of uh, thinkers and philosophers. They were also very much teachers of rhetoric and argumentation. And I'm thinking, of course, of the sophists who um, really were, they offered their services to teach people in exchange for money, uh, the ability to persuade others to any point of view. And so, you know, their whole business, as you say, is based on argumentation. uh, But also, as you say, they definitely had um, sophistication in their, excuse the pun, um, in their method because they certainly understood the content they were arguing. To me, it, it reminded me a little bit of lawyers who can argue any point they're given, uh, but also it reminds me of some of the criticisms of philosophy, uh, which also, which always um, in, in a university context sometimes can be very adversarial and uh, argumentative, and often it seems like it's argument for argument's sake. What is um, your thought on the way that philosophy is practised in um, current day when we have these uh, arguments about uh, certain theories and ways of being and asking questions of each other and really um, picking holes in the weaknesses of arguments. Well, you know, um, the, the sophists of antiquity got a very bad press from, from Plato, and perhaps rather unfairly. I mean, after all, uh, you know, that was a time when, when people were interested in, in um, advancing their uh, education and understanding of the world, where an ability to be a, a very good speaker, the rhetorical skills of, of the political agora and of the law courts 
were very, very important to a career. So actually, the, the, the sophists were probably not quite as, as wicked as, as Plato makes them out. You've got to remember that, that history is always the, the, the victor's history, and Plato is such a great figure in the story of philosophy that we look at things through his spectacles. Of course, there were some sophists who, who weren't really interested in the outcome of arguments. They made the point, and, and it's a point which a lawyer today might make, that um, you know a, a, everybody deserves to have the best case made on their behalf. So a defense lawyer in a criminal case, for example, will try to do the very best that he or she can for somebody who's under an indictment. Um, and th you know th th that, that idea was implicit in what the sophists were trying to do as well. So certainly some of them, I think, were um, a little bit unscrupulous. Some of them weren't. Now, the, the, the great point that Plato was insisting on, and it is a good point, is the distinction between what he called dialectic, which is discussion, conversation, uh, aiming to arrive at clearer understanding or the truth, and on the other hand, what he called heuristic, which means, what, as you've put it quite rightly, argument for argument's sake, just being just being contrary, just being adversarial, just for the sake of it. It's not really interested in, in finding out what the right answer is, but you just want to oppose people just to be a nuisance. And he, and he uh, charged some of the sophists with being too interested in heuristic and not interested enough in dialectic. And I think that's a good distinction to remember, because certainly uh, in, in academic philosophy today, again, as you correctly point out, the sheer joy of arguing and disagreeing and logic chopping and trying to refute somebody else's argument can get in the way of really trying to achieve some kind of understanding. But in the end, anybody who's very interested in these great, great questions about, about life, about our world, about making sense of things, will in the end always go with Plato in the direction of dialectic rather than heuristic. Mm. I'm so glad we've been dwelling in ancient philosophy. I know we haven't really left uh, that yet, uh, and obviously the time is getting up to 12, um, so I'm, I'm going to shift from um, arguments in philosophy to arguments over politics, which of course there is some overlap with. Uh, just finally, Anthony, if people um, may look at your Twitter feed, they would see that you are very much engaged in the arguments and debates around Brexit, um, which of course I won't even recount for those who listen because we've discussed it so many times, but I'm really interested interested in your particular involvement in this issue and why it's become such an important point for you and uh, an important cause um, that you have really taken up. Well, uh, to, to begin with, uh, I'm a very, very uh, committed European. I'm, I believe that the EU project, which is at the moment, of course, it's very flawed. It's, it's uh, you know, got a lot of problems. It's a work in progress. It's going to take a long time to uh, develop the institutions and the integration in Europe, which would um, solve some of these difficulties. But nevertheless, even despite them, it has already been a huge success, principally, of course, in bringing peace to a continent which for century after century after century was riven with the most terrible wars. Uh, and this, this um, project uh, of integrating uh, all the economies of Europe together to ensure that they are so intimately embraced by one another that they, they will never again go to war with one another is, I think, a, a, a triumphant, uh, an idealistic and already successful project. So 
uh, I, I campaigned uh, in the referendum of 2016 to remain in Europe. I'm very, very, very disappointed indeed that the referendum was so badly planned. You know, only 37% of the British electorate voted to leave, and yet on the day of the election, a very rainy day with a low, uh, you know, a, a, the turnout that was lowered in some parts of the country, uh, it turned out to be a 51.89% vote to leave, and that was snatched at by the Brexiters who have for years wanted to try to take the UK out. So I got involved with the, with the campaign, and I now have the, the very interesting uh, privilege, indeed, to be the, the, the chairman of the coordinating group of uh, uh, the national Remainer organizations like Best for Britain and the European Movement and uh, Better In and all, all these anti-Brexit uh, campaigning groups, especially, of course, the People's Vote campaign, which is a campaign for a second referendum. first referendum, as you know, was very flawed. The Leave campaign was found guilty by uh, the Electoral Commission of um, uh, fraudulent and criminal activities in that campaign. They've been fined and charged with costs nearly half a million dollars worth. A judge in the High Court said if the uh, referendum had not been advisory, it would have to have been voided because of those crimes. So we're now working as hard as we can to stop Brexit. We still think that we can do it. The Brexit is at the moment when you see the news coming out of the UK with Boris Johnson trying to you know, get a no-deal Brexit and to drag the country out by the end of October is a mark of the desperation of the Brexiters because they know they've lost the argument. They know that there's a majority in the UK for staying in the EU. One of the great paradoxes of this situation is that the United Kingdom is now the most passionately European country in the EU, which is <laughs> an extraordinary outcome of this. So we're fighting very hard to do it. And it is something that means an enormous amount to me because the philosophy, the science, the literature, the music, the art of, of, of Europe, of what Europe has done in developing ideas of civil liberties and democracy, spreading those ideas uh, around the world, uh, you know, has been a huge uh, contribution. And by the way, I say that, and I want to make this rather clear, but not in the same tone of voice or the same key as um, the idea of Western civilization as put forward by the Ramsey uh, Institute. Mm. That, of course, that, of course, has a political motivation behind it, which is not, not a very pleasant or good one. There are wonderful riches in the other great civilizations of our world. Indeed, I write about them in my History of Philosophy book, India and China and so on. So I'm not extolling Western civilization uh, for, for that sort of reason. But we, we do have to acknowledge that uh, we, we Europeans have made uh, a big contribution to world history, even though we've done some terrible things as well. So Europe matters to me, and I'm very, very committed in, to this fight against Brexit. And I think that even if a Brexit were to happen, and it, it's, you know, a good possibility, we'll discount my wishful thinking here, but it's a good possibility it won't. But even if some form of Brexit were to happen, I don't think it would stick. I think we will be back in the European Union sooner rather than later. And I, on the day that that happens, I will be delighted. I very much hope that you are successful uh, because I can only see the benefits of remaining with the European Union and, as you say, the uh, historical imperative that is that has been peacetime and Europe working together, which is only a very recent phenomenon uh, in terms of the uh, reduction of conflict and um, the rebuilding of Europe and um, some form of cohesion and unity within it. So um, thank you so much, Anthony, for your time today and thank you for your passion on both of these issues of philosophy and, of course, the European Union and Brexit. Thank you so much, Amy. Lovely to talk to you. Absolutely. Great to chat again. 
Bye. I was speaking there with AC Grayling, Anthony Grayling, who has written a book, The History of Philosophy. It is out now uh, through, I think it's Penguin Australia and Viking in the UK. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.